So kia ora, Abbas, the author of this book, Beyond the Temper, who's a young man at the time when you were on the temper itself and more recently has written this book. And we're going to, the format of today, we're going to have a little bit of a chat between us and uh, Helen Clark will be zooming in at some point. And there will be plenty of time as well for questions from the floor. What we do ask is when we get to the question time that you come to the mics, which will be in the aisle, and that we will facilitate questions that way. But we'll still have plenty of time for that. So as far as the bus goes, he is the author of this book. He's also a Fulbright scholar, uh, obviously a person of refugee background but also someone who, in reading the book and getting to know, is a wonderful, wonderful human being. So Abbas, why don't you start with a few words from yourself? Fantastic. Uh, thank you, Ikan. Uh, look, it's, uh, you know, my name and my face on the cover of the book, uh, but uh, this story is about the other 430-odd uh, asylum seekers who are also rescued by the Tampa. And the reason I'm standing up is I just want to give, uh, you know, if everyone could give a round of acknowledgement to some of those folks who are actually in the room today, including mum and dad, my family and my brothers right here. So they are the central characters of this story. So if, if, if all of you guys can give a round of applause. When I was approached to write this book, um, there's a bit of hesitation there because I didn't know if there would be interest in a story like this. I didn't know if there would be interest in a general sort of refugee story or an interest in the Tampa story. But the more I thought about it, the more I came to realize that not only is there immense interest, but throughout the entire Tampa saga, there was not one moment where the folks who were rescued by that boat had a chance to tell their story, to tell it from their own words and in their own eyes why they left, what forced them to flee and to seek shelter elsewhere. And most importantly, now that they've been given a chance to resettle and, and build a new life for themselves in New Zealand, what have they been doing over these last 20 years? So that is why I took up the opportunity to write this book. Um, it's dedicated first and foremost to mum and dad. Um, you know, thank you for giving up your today for our tomorrow. And uh, thank you all for coming out today. Cheers. And as we can see, we have Helen Clark with us as well. Many of you will know Helen from her 1996 appearance on Shortland Street. Um, <laughs> but you might not know she's also one of New Zealand's longest-serving prime ministers, more recently as well, the head of the UN Development Program and the co-chair of the COVID response. She is a passionate, passionate, fierce supporter of well-being globally and very passionate about this topic in particular, having visited Afghanistan a number of times, three times, is that correct, Helen? Over the years, more That's recently, right. just in 2019, as the pandemic was kicking off. This is a person who cares deeply for what is well and what is right. So we will weave Helen in uh, from her, uh, with her context and her perspective as, uh, as the questions go on. But to start with, um, it's very difficult to not give spoilers in the book. Clearly, you were on the temper, and clearly you made it. So, you know, the hero doesn't <laughs> die. Uh, it's a feel-good story. It's, it's a feel-good story. But I felt, as I was reading this, there wasn't a single hero. Like, uh, autobiographies, people put themselves as the hero, and you really haven't done that. You really put humans as the hero. Like, you humanized every person. You said 430 people on the boat, but you talked about individual humans. Talk to me a bit more about why you wanted to have a humanized feel to this. Um, you know, first and foremost, when it comes to telling the refugee story, uh, for the large majority of the public, when you hear about it, it's usually a statistic, or if you just dig, them, dig one layer lower, it's usually maybe a country of origin. And that's about it. And lost in that discussion, lost in that uh, enormity of the movement of forced displacement, of having to make a decision to, to board up your house, to jump in the back of a truck, to jump on a boat, or whatever, or to walk across continents, lost is the human struggle in that, the personal journey, the names, the faces, of, and the conversations that take place. And so that's why it's not about me, but rather you could copy and paste Afghanistan with another conflict zone or another area of the world that is experiencing upheaval, be they climate-driven. And so, I mean, I don't know if a reading was part of the plans today, but I do have you know, one of my favorite passages in the book that talk about that. When we see a trail of desperate people fleeing conflict, perhaps on the TV news, we miss the points in time when a parent has to make a life-altering decision on behalf of a whole family, to stay or to go, to endure known misery or to march towards an unknown future. 
Caught between the endless ocean and an uncertain earth, we chose life. Some kind of future beckoned and desperation powered us to climb aboard. It seemed everyone was coming to that same conclusion and a mild scramble erupted. Luggage was tossed on board in a swarm of activity. Noise, chaos, crying children. Adults waded out nervously, most touching seawater for the first time in their lives. Today my mother recalls the curtain of fear that hung before her as she walked towards the boat. She battled with the voice in her head that insistently urged her to stay on dry land, to cling to certainty, however bleak. With every step, she felt she was dragging a heavy chain. Through teary eyes, she could hardly see the ladders as her feet, one by one, left solid ground. There was no turning back now. And the reason I, I highlight that passage is because of the conversation. And the reason I highlight that passage is, you know, you see a, a, a picture or a photo or a video of, of refugees, but you don't know all of the points that led up to that point. And that's why it's a very humanized uh, story in this book. And you, you touch on mum and dad just in that passage, but it, throughout the book as well, how important they are in your story, but also the decisions they made to, to bring you to this point, to bring the whole family to this point, the decisions they made with your older brother in particular to protect him as a young man as well. Um, love to hear more about mum and dad. For sure. I mean, uh, look, to give you the um, sort of 60-second version of, of Afghan history and our role in it, you know, Afghanistan is almost like a patchwork quilt made up of uh, very multicultural, multi multilingual, uh, uh, sectarian country that has been at the, you know, at the at the force of, of uh, at the hands of multiple forces, historic, uh, many empires coming and going, and so the area that we call Afghanistan has always been a place of incredible rich culture and heritage and history, but also conflict, sadly. And one of the groups there are the Hazara, my people, an, an ethnic minority. We, we look different, we speak a different language, we worship differently. And that has always kind of uh, made us outsiders uh, in that country. Uh, so my, my, my family, we can trace our lineage to the particular area that we lived in uh, going back almost a century. Um, and so, you know, when the Taliban came through in, in the mid-1990s, uh, in their quest to make Afghanistan great again, or to make Islam great again, I guess, that meant that there was no room for minorities, especially people who looked differently or spoke differently or, or worshipped differently. And so that forced us to flee. And the reason I give you that background and that context is lost amidst that, when you read a piece in the New York Times or the Washington Post, is families like mine who have lived and farmed on pieces of land for generations, who now are forced to choose between do you stay and hope that you can survive should the Taliban come through? Or do you just literally board up your house, put your belongings in a bag and, and head elsewhere, whether that's within the country first, and then if that's not safe enough, then maybe across the first border, which for us uh, was, was Pakistan. And so all of that decision-making, keep in mind, you know, uh, I'm a young child, don't understand, I don't have any understanding of the context uh, all of that decision-making falls on the parents. Do you stay? What do you do for your children who are all in the, under the age of 15? You know, and that's, that, that's, the, uh, that's the decision that a parent has to make. And I wonder if we can bring you in now, Helen, unless that was your Zoom saying, no, you're not here anymore. <laughs> no, here we go. Just, just your experiences with not just the, the, the sheer volume of displaced people, but those humanized stories and those, the sacrifices that people make um, this assumption that, oh, you're coming for a greater land and, and things like that, but not realizing how dangerous it is to even make a decision like this. Oh, yes. Look, think of the choices that Abbas's family was faced with. To stay, knowing that elsewhere, outside your village, the Taliban were persecuting Hazara people, and in time they would get to your village if they could. And so the family makes this difficult choice to step into the completely unknown from landlocked Afghanistan and start a journey that leads them to the sea, which they've never seen before, uh, to try the hope of getting to a new land. I cannot imagine how hard that is. When we first became aware of the story, 
we became aware of the families on board the boat and of course of the, the boys under the age of 18 who are legally children, whose parents had made the decision to probably pawn and borrow everything they could to get those boys on a boat with the hope that they might reach a new land and someday families could come with them. What an incredible choice. Think of putting your 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old on that you know, truck to get to a border, get over it, get on a <laughs> leaky boat. I mean, you know, the human agony of this is, is incredible. What, what I remember is the sort of shock jock radio style opposition to our accepting people coming from the Tampa. Always use the phrase, these people are Q-jumpers. Q-jumpers, you know, there's all these people in refugee camps and they need resettlement. These people are trying to jump the queue. Look, faced with the decision these families were faced with, <laughs> I'd do anything I could to get out of it. And, uh, you know, New Zealand played a small part in this, but let's salute the courage of people like Abbas's parents and all those other parents who saw that the choices were impossible and they had to do something for their families. We would all act in that way, in these circumstances. So that, that's the human side of it, isn't it? And not just seeing people as numbers. Good God, what's this, you know, 438 Q-jumpers on a boat? No, no, 438 living, breathing human beings wanting a better life. That's what it's about. And you speak of a small part that New Zealand played, and yes, it was 150 that New Zealand took in, but for those 150, it meant the world for them, uh, as we know, and it's, it's transformational for them. Um, Abbas, in reading the book, you are a ridiculously positive person. Uh, I mean, more positive than I am. I get annoyed by traffic. <laughs> uh, but given what you've gone through, but there was one or two paragraphs midway where perhaps you just said, I'm not happy about this. Mm. I'm not happy about how we were treated by people who are using us as potentially political pawns or anything like that, and not seeing us as humans, but seeing us as a way I can win votes or anything like that. Mm -hmm. What do you have to say to perhaps world leaders who, who use displaced people mm -hmm. in that way? And in particular, let's say you had 30 minutes with, with the Australian Prime Minister, John Howard, now, mm -hmm. <laughs> and had, had a chance to sit down, have a cup of chai with him and say, yeah. look what happened to me. Yeah. Um, man, I have a lot of things to say to John. Um, <laughs> this is where we get the recording. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, look, um, I, I, in writing this book, I try to leave my biases aside, and, and one of the most powerful things that we can all do is to try and look at the world through someone else's perspective. So there, of course, you know, I'm this little kid on the boat. I've, I've now understand the gravity of our story in hindsight. So in writing this, what I did was I tried to get into the minds and the shoes of a rural or, uh, you know, inner-city voter who might have voted for, for Howard in the 2001 election. And you're sitting there and, uh, you know, uh, the media outlets are blaring out that these guys are Q-jumpers, aliens, foreigners, boat people, national security threats, you know, every other pejorative that you could throw. Now, of course, that's going to impact how I see the world. So it's only in hindsight that if John could see myself, my family, my community, the other Tampa families who were lucky enough to call New Zealand home, and then, you know, he could see just how glaringly wrong it was to both frame the story that way, but sadly to implant in the minds of so many Australians that all of these people are coming here are going to be economic leeches, that they don't have any place in Australian society or all the rest of it. And so don't, I don't have much to say. All that he has to do is to look at our community of Afghan New Zealanders, which is only about 5,000, you know, it's 0.1% of the population. It's smaller, just the size of a town of Cromwell, for example. And just look at, our town, look at our little community and see how far we've come. We were given a chance, and then we just kind of took it with both hands and, and we've built a life and built a community. And it's very hard to, to tell that to them at the time, but I hope now, 20 years on from the Tampa affair, uh, Australians, and partic uh, particularly uh, those in decision-making, uh, can say, no, we, we were wrong on that one, that perhaps if we give a chance to, you know, uh, 10, 20,000 Afghans right now who are fleeing Kabul, uh, then they too can actually be part and parcel of Australian society. 
and that translates to New Zealand as well. Uh, the rhetoric, the discussion, the civil discourse regarding refugees in New Zealand, thankfully, uh, in my experience, has been uh, very civil and very uh, positive. Uh, but the moment you bring this up in Australia, even in the most uh, uh, liberal parts of it, it becomes a very, very divisive topic. And that speaks to, um, you know, the, the type of media that they have and also the politicians which harness that discussion. And thankfully, it hasn't reached that level in New Zealand. Uh, that's why stories like this are, are so important. And I wonder if we can pull you in, Helen, because you were right in the midst of this. Um, as, as a leader of New Zealand at the time, close, very close relationship with the leaders in Australia as a country over many, many years. Um, how, how is it from your perspective when you are trying to negotiate some way to save some of these people? Well, we saw it in, in human terms. And uh, look, I think that if you look at how the Tampa families and, and boys have settled in New Zealand, you have to say <laughs> this, this was a great decision. It was the right decision at the time, but you look at how the families just grasped every opportunity that they had and have done so well. I remember in, um, uh, in the years when I was Prime Minister after the families had come and settled, I'd go down to the Afghan at Avondale Market and the families were on the first ladder of micro-enterprise at the Avondale market, you know, selling, <laughs> selling things. And, you know, many of the families, the boys, have, have gone on to establish sizable and significant businesses and, of course, had the kind of success that Abbas has had and, and others have had academically in sport, culture, whatever. It, it, it's been phenomenal. And, and it really kind of lifts your, lifts your faith in the human spirit that, you know, people are resilient, give it a chance. 99.9 uh, .9 times out of 100, they're going to make uh, make the most of it. So just see people as as human beings, that they've got hopes and dreams and, and aspirations, and, and given a chance, they'll make the most of it. By the way, the first um, decision was to take 150 uh, people, and that was the boys, and I think there were 39 of them, under 18, and also the family groups of which uh, Abbas uh, was, was one. But later on, more did come because mm. people kind of got stuck on Nauru and mm. it was jolly hard, still jolly hard. And, and we more eventually did come. And then over the years, the, the families came. I remember going to meet uh, the boys as they were at the Mangere Reception Centre. And the first question they were all asking through the interpreters was, when can our families come? You know, and you just ha you had to you know, meet that aspiration that the families had invested all their hopes in them, and the boys with a foothold and a stake in a new life. And over time, as as Abbas said, the little community uh, grew from the first 150, and then some more to the you know the, the quite yeah small but significant Hazara mm. community. And I wonder if we can build on that a little bit, because bringing people here is one thing, but that Mangare Centre and that settlement centre and making you feel part of what it means to be in New Zealand is, has to be a huge part of it as well. You can't just bring people into a country and, and leave them to their own devices. Do you want to talk a little bit more yeah. about your experience there and maybe, Helen, your, your rationale for why this wraparound support upon entry is so important as well? Yeah, and, and thanks for bringing that up. Look, the, not many Kiwis know, but um, uh, in South Auckland, in, in Mangere, I think it used to be an old military barracks. Uh, it's now, uh, I think, in recent years been developed and, and looks like a very flash motel. But, uh, you know, as a refugee, you arrive to New Zealand at Auckland Airport, then you go uh, and get bus to the Mangere Refugee Resettlement Centre and you undertake, I think it's a six- or eight-week orientation program. You know, welcome to New Zealand the rights and responsibilities of, of, of citizenship in, in New Zealand and essentially just, you know, your Aotearoa 101 class is something as simple as triple um, one is the emergency number to what side of the road to drive on, also very important, to um, getting documentation and health checks and uh, having been at sea for 35 days like we were to then uh, a charter plane picking us up from Nauru to Auckland Airport and then being bused to Mangere where we were welcomed with, um, you know, Haka Pōwhiri, to then seeing 
the most amount of food I had ever seen. Um, you know, you can only imagine the journey that we had been on, right? And so I credit my, my growth to ample amounts of, of New Zealand beef and dairy, uh, which, which the cooks, the ladies in the kitchen, took a particular liking to me. And so, look, it was an awesome, fantastic experience. I learned my ABCs at the little uh, education centre there on campus. And then after that, when we had been uh, registered and, and state housing had been found for us throughout New Zealand, uh, my family and a few other clusters of families, we were resettled to Christchurch and, and life for us began. Um, in hindsight, that orientation, that welcome to New Zealand is so incredibly important because you feel grounded and you know that this is home and you're not just left out there in the cold all by yourself. Um, and there are translators there, there are health professionals, all the rest of it. And so while I think, um, you know, New Zealand gets a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of negative attention for the number or the total quantity of refugees that we resettle, which I think there is room to increase that further. I think the one plus that you have to have is that, that wraparound government support, both orientation and then ongoing, once you are resettled throughout the country, is, is immeasurable. I don't think we would have been as successful or have had such a positive welcome to New Zealand had those programs not existed. Uh, so, you know, for me and my family and everyone else I spoke to uh, with this book um, is an incredibly positive experience and, and I hope that's still in place today. Yeah. I, I'm thinking maybe everyone needs to Aotearoa one. <laughs> I fuck a puffer back to India, they can tell me what side of the road to drive on, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Helen, what are, what are your thoughts on these resettlement centres in particular and uh, as, as their role in, in making people feel welcome? Well, Avas is right. It, it, it's absolutely critical. Uh, they might have rebuilt Mangari by now, but the, as Avas remembers it and as I remember it, it was like an old military barracks. <laughs> It wasn't a five-star hotel, you know, like a lot of people come into with managed isolation and quarantine today. <laughs> it's quite, quite, quite simple, and I think shared ablution blocks, a bus, no ensuite, mm. um, you know, general sort of mess, as it were. But it's the first step to life in New Zealand, Aotearoa 101, as, as, as a bus said. And then it, but the services have to, of course, go on beyond uh, the Mangalini Reception Centre. And then let's face it, almost everybody coming as a, as a refugee has, has escaped from something terrible. They know someone has been killed, uh, tortured, uh, detained, disappeared, uh, either first-hand family member, community member, or, or the, the fear that's spreading from, from nearby communities. That, they've got a reason to get out. So in a sense, you, know, you also have to deal with the trauma, you know, the some have quite profound post-traumatic stress disorder, which requires long-term uh, support. And one of the organisations I'm patron of today is Refugees as Survivors NZ, which deals exactly in this area of the, the, the support for those who've been uh, traumatised by, uh, deeply traumatised by the experience. So then, uh, as Abbas's book uh, tells, uh, his family... Uh, went down to Christchurch. There was a, a state house uh, uh, for them, and uh, and the community uh, support continued, and and support from our, our social security system. Uh, the story of the boys in Auckland was was quite an interesting one because obviously, as a government, we're thinking, gosh, we're accepting. 39 boys who take their mums and dads and families here. What do we do? And I have to say that our, um, our child welfare ministry of social development people were, were fantastic. What they did was they either bought or acquired a very large, sprawling old house in Auckland, and they had camp mothers, basically, mm. camp mothers and cops. Mm. And, and I know that the, the Tampa boys keep a deep affection for those who who worked with them there uh, over the years that they were there. And then the next thing was, what about the schooling? Because um, many of these boys had not had the opportunity for even the most basic of, of schooling. And Selwyn College came to the party and uh, set up a special classroom and arrangements for, uh, for the 39 Tampa boys. And, and you know, starting with you know, English and the, the most rudimentary uh, reading 
and, and mathematics. And again, the boys will have a great affection for, for Selwyn College and you know, Carol White and the other co-principals, Helen White MP's mother, who, who were part of, of, of that solution. Uh, so, you know, it, it was a, a, a big wraparound. And if, if we want people to have a chance to, to settle successfully, you, you need these steps in place. English, obviously, pretty important to functioning uh, in New Zealand. Someone in the family's got a grasp of it, and often it'll be the children first who are doing the interpreting for mum and dad. That was probably your experience of us, I guess, uh, <laughs> for you and your siblings. But, hey, it, it can work, and work really well, and, uh, you know, the, the book is a testament to that. So just as we wrap up our final questions, you used the word home. You know, you, you felt like you were welcomed home. And I, and I didn't get a chance to chat to you about this before. Um, what does homeland mean to you? You know, I mean, when we, when we think of homeland, we think of where we came from. But mm. is that really accurate for, for someone in your situation? You speak so fondly of going back to Sangjoy and to mm. Afghanistan and the changes and differences there. Is, is Christchurch home? Is New Zealand home? Do yeah. you have home? Do you have that sense of Turanga Waiwai where you feel you belong? Mm. It's a fantastic question. Allow me a couple of minutes to explain. Um, it's one of the central themes of this book that when you are forcibly displaced uh, from an area, particularly an area where your family has, has lived and toiled on the land uh, dating back almost a century, and then some unknown force which has no connection to you uproots you and forces you to leave and seek shelter elsewhere, it is a rude awakening. It is the worst way to, to, to say goodbye to your homeland. And so for many refugees, especially those who come, uh, who are resettled, you know, in their, uh, when they're a bit older, perhaps, and when their identities have formed, being uprooted like that and then being resettled elsewhere, it takes the hardest challenge is that ability to set down roots. For me personally, having arrived as a child, it was so easy. You know, we picked up the language, we got stuck into society, we just joined local football clubs, we became friends with the kids down the road, and this was home for us, this was it. But for parents, uh, setting down roots and feeling at home the way they did is an incredibly, incredibly uh, long, long journey. 20 years on, Christchurch is home for me and my brothers and all of us who arrived here as kids. Uh, but for my parents and their generation, they are still between the two. They're very, very proud Kiwis. They support the Crusaders, right? Support the Crusaders and watch the All Blacks games. Uh, but the moment something happens over there, and especially with the last three months, uh, their mind and their heart is immediately over there because they've got family. You've got connections there, you've got community, you've got people that you grew up with who are now facing that imminent danger. And so, uh, you know, there's a word, a phrase in there, earthless trees, where we've got roots, but for parents, you know, their roots are still not settled into the ground quite yet. Um, for me, I mean, it's very easy for me to just turn off the TV or unfollow social media and just forget about it. Every time something happens in Afghanistan, I can say it's not my problem, and I could easily do that. Uh, but when you've got your family connections there, when you've got your homeland, when you've got beautiful Persian Afghan rugs at home um, and you speak Farsi at home, that connection is, is, is there and, it's all, and I think it'll always be there. So homeland is a, is, it's a powerful word and uh, it means a lot to so many people and especially those people who have been forcibly displaced. I think the journey for the folks who arrive when they're a bit older the journey to setting down roots is made easier when they arrive in a community that is welcoming, that people look at them with interest, not with disgust, where they have the social support and the welfare system to feel that I may look different, I may speak a different language, but this is home for me. And when those things are there, then it makes the integration journey and finding, uh, finding your feet just that much easier. Yeah. And what do you think the future holds for Afghanistan now, knowing what you know from your childhood, but also in your trips back? Yeah. Um, anyone who has tried to uh, forecast uh, the future of Afghanistan has failed and failed miserably. 
um, because of how incredibly uh, multi-layered that society is. I've been back to Afghanistan in 2012 and 2017, and in that in that last trip back in 2017, we were driving back to Kabul, and I found myself uh, daydreaming about an Afghanistan that could be, an Afghanistan that might exist in another universe. On the drive back to Kabul, I thought about what Afghanistan might look like in another world, in another time. In amongst the chaos and despair, I saw glimpses of potential, with soaring peaks and clear lakes that rival the best the South Island of New Zealand has to offer. Afghanistan is a country of spectacular and largely undiscovered natural beauty. I pictured hordes of foreign backpackers taking in the scenery of a network of world-class national parks. In winter, the mountains receive a general coating of snow, offering the prospects of superb ski fields. I imagine alpine lodges and cabins, just like in the Swiss Alps. Vast teams of well-trained, well-paid miners would work the numerous state-owned and privately-run mining operations. In 2010, the US Department of Defense estimated a trillion-dollar mother load of precious metals lay untouched in the Afghan hinterland. This could be the basis for a significant tax revenue for the government, highly skilled employment, and even a sovereign wealth fund. I imagined Afghan exports catering to the global demand for premium organic foods. I envisaged world-class infrastructure powered by Afghanistan's plentiful natural supply of renewable energy. I imagined foreign homes adorned with high-class rugs and carpets handmade by artisans continuing centuries-old traditions of craftsmanship. I imagined a country where everyone had a seat at the table and women were valued for more than their domestic skills. I imagined a nation where differences in culture and language were reconciled under a common creed. A nation where perhaps finally the Hazara genocide was recognized. I was still dreaming about this perfect future when we reached the main road into Kabul. A barbed wire checkpoint was manned by Afghan National Army soldiers with a dozen armored, heavily armored vehicles parked nearby. A sudden reality check. So Afghanistan could be something else, far more than what you and I have known about it for the past 50 years. I think it is on a journey, and in the last month, the last couple of months, a new chapter has been opened up in that country's long and tortured history, and, and who knows what the future holds. But sadly, you know, it's, it's dropped from the main pages, and people think that um, just because it's not front-page news anymore that life goes on. But... For many who are trapped under the, under the iron fists of the Taliban, it looks like it'll be a bleak, bleak future ahead. Helen, um, I, I appreciate you're very passionate about this topic, and we only have 30 minutes left. Uh, so is there a 30-second or one-minute approach to what you think the future holds for not just countries like Afghanistan, but countries who are facing similar plight? Well, the, the one-minute approach is... Uh, they, they may have now one of the worst governments in the world, which is an insurgent government, which is, you know, basically thrown out an elected one. But that shouldn't uh, distract us from the need to support the Afghan people. And for every, you know, story like Abbas's or uh, some of, you know, those who have been evacuated in, in recent months, <laughs> there, there are millions at home. You know, up, upwards of 35, 36 million Afghans who, who can't and won't be leaving. And many of them are near starvation. The economy is in freefall. So please support the appeals of the World Food Programme, of the High Commissioner for Refugees, of UNICEF, of UN Women, because otherwise a lot of people aren't going to make it through this winter. That, that's my simple message. So one of the things we discussed in advance of this session is the bus's deep desire to answer some questions, because <laughs> the questions we have may not be the questions you have. Um, Helen made a really clear um, sort of direction to all of us for one thing we can do as citizens um, to support, I suppose, the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. I'm interested, is there anything we can all do, maybe in a more of a political sense, mm. to influence the New Zealand government and the role they might play? Any thoughts on that? Yes. Uh, perfect question, and thank you for asking me. Um, there is a number of very measurable, practical things that everyone in this uh, room can take today, and that is um, immediately after August 15th when Taliban took over 
there's a huge rush, people wanting to help. And we coordinated, uh, you know, through Action Station, uh, a, you know, a petition that got 20,000 signatures within a couple of days. And we thought that the government would be receptive and, and they were, you know, ministers would join our calls and say, well, look, we're looking to help. This was when everything was in flux, when there were still airlifts happening. And since that August 31st deadline has passed, it's been very, very quiet. And so that has also naturally paralleled the interest in Afghanistan. So something you can all do today is just a simple email or a phone call to your local representative to say, what is this government doing uh, to help the people of Afghanistan? And specifically, what is this government doing with regards to Afghan refugees? There are, right now in Afghanistan, there are a number of folks who have the right to come to New Zealand, be they, you know, helped in the NZDF effort, be they human rights defenders, be they who have some connection to New Zealand. Like myself, personally, I have family over there, and, and we've been lobbying the Immigration New Zealand to, to open up pathways uh, as an emergency intake of Afghan refugees. And, uh, of course, COVID is the number one determinant of that, but there's been a lot of radio silence. So something you can all do is, is just lobby your local MP to say, look, we haven't forgotten about Afghanistan, that please keep it on your radar. And number two, again, forever the optimist, suppose in time Afghan uh, refugees are resettled throughout, uh, throughout New Zealand, be they Canterbury or elsewhere, uh, that if you could put your hand up to, to help with that resettlement journey and volunteer through the Red Cross, whether it's an hour or a week, I understand that in the audience there are a couple of folks here who helped our family, I think, uh, Jan and her family, who, who raised their hand, who saw an ad in the paper and said, look, we're willing to help and volunteer and give an hour or two of our time a week to take the kids to the park, to take them to school, to enrol them in clinics, that kind of thing. Those practical pieces of help cemented us and built the foundation for our life in New Zealand. So those are two, two things that you guys can do. Thank you, Marianne. Awesome. And I think just as we wait for others to come forward with questions, Helen, I wonder if you can speak to this idea of what can a small country like New Zealand on the bottom of the world that gets left off 90% of maps possibly do on the geopolitical world stage? So, uh, firstly, coming in, you know, supporting a bus, uh, I think it, it's really helpful for uh, the local MPs and ministers to hear of support from the broader New Zealand community for taking uh, refugees. Now, uh, while things have gone quiet, believe me, uh, wheels are turning and people are quietly being extracted and brought out of Afghanistan. And the, the government has uh, appointed the New Zealand ambassador in uh, United Arab Emirates and to Qatar uh, to be the, the special representative on this. He's been in that post for a few years, so he knows the, he knows the scene particularly Qatar is a lifeline at the moment because of Qatar Airways, which is going into Kabul, and people are quietly coming, coming out. So it's a, it's a bit below the radar, and of course, you know, it, it's not at the scale which the you know, many affected Afghan families and community would like to see, but, but, but wheels are turning. And, and sometimes in these situations, you can't say too much publicly, and the people who are quietly coming in here they won't be saying too much either because they have family at risk at home. And if you say too much, then the Taliban and intelligence can go after your family. And that intelligence is pretty pretty vicious. And, and the treatment meted out can be pretty pretty vicious. But just all messages of, of support to the government, you're doing the right thing, keep bringing people, uh, are very, very important messages because obviously there's always other voices in New Zealand. You know, queue jumpers, who are these people? Why them? You know, after 35 million others, we can't take them all. You know, you can imagine all, all the rhetoric. So just affirm that New Zealand's doing the right thing uh, by, by stepping up. And it may be quiet, but, but, but it's happening. And then the other thing, as I say, is there, there is a need for support for all the appeals. And there will be, you know, also all the NGOs that are trying to help uh, behind the, the scenes. This is not, quote, helping the Taliban. We have to help the Afghan people. Look, when I went on the, the visit in March uh, 2019 with World Vision, I went then to the Western provinces, which were very badly affected by drought. I went to a hospital on the outskirts of Herat, 
right by which there was a displaced people's camp for the rural families who had lost all their animals, couldn't grow anything, couldn't feed animals, couldn't feed the family, and they had basically kind of limped and hitchhiked down to the outskirts of Herat to, to not refugee camp tents, but to basically living under, under bits of tarpaulin and plastic. And they had children in that hospital who were the very image of the worst photo of a starving child you've ever seen. That was close to three years ago. Imagine what it's like now. So just do whatever you can to support. And, and also backing a bus, when people come to settle in New Zealand, they need support. Look, we all know we're under pressure for state housing at the moment, and I think uh, the, the people doing the resettlement need to reach out to those who are making the offers of accommodation, because people are, but haven't necessarily been able to get that offer into a, into a system. We, we need support to house a lot of people. We, we've talked a little bit more about the past and how you came to New Zealand, but I wonder if you want to expand a little bit on your more recent journeys, your, your Fulbright scholarship. I know it's been, mm -hmm. the book has been from refugee on the temper to Fulbright scholarship. Amazing, you know, the exceptionalism thing, but also how your family is doing. I know, yep. uh, give a shout out, is it Kiwi Auto Records? What's the, what's the, the, <laughs> the family? Uh, Kiwi, Kiwi Auto Records, if you could all just pull out your phone and give us a five-star review, that'll help us. <laughs> uh, look, uh, the, the journey, the last 20 years, uh, Writing the, the last couple of chapters on, on arriving at Ballantyne Ave in Upper Rickerton in the last 20 years since, uh, it was just to look back on the journey we've been on, it was so incredibly humbling and gratifying to go from, uh, you know, below ground. You know, Dad would say, look, we're, we're starting at below square one and life is going to come at us like a charging bull and we have to learn to wrestle it and take it with our both hands, all right? And that is the good and bad and ugly. That we could easily claim the mantle of victimhood to say that we had been victimised by external forces, that we'd been transplanted to a foreign country, that we didn't know their language, that we were hamstrung in a hundred different ways. Or you can say that now you've been given a chance at almost complete rebirth that you could build your life up from scratch, that here you have all the support you need to, to thrive. And so which perspective are you going to take? That pain is the gift that everyone receives and nobody wants, so what are you going to do with it? And so those values that were instilled in us allowed us to thrive the way that it did. For me personally, that has possibly meant going down the academic route. But for so many of the other Tampa families and the other refugees who have arrived since, especially those who were perhaps a little old to go to formal uh, schooling, they just went and got a trade and picked up the tools and got straight to it. You know, uh, Canterbury earthquakes hit in 2011 and now suddenly all the Afghan tilers and plumbers and builders and contractors, they were able to build a life for their families. And that is, needs to be celebrated just as much because that is them living out the Kiwi dream, which is my favorite chapter in the book. And so my personal journey has been fantastic. The, the journeys of everyone else who's gone down, built their own businesses. I see Nathan Najib is here, and he's Christchurch's number one real estate agent, um, you know, who've gone to build their own businesses, who've gone to do extraordinary things. They need to be celebrated just as much. And, and the flip side of that is then, and I hate contradicting myself, the flip side of that is then there's this narrative of, well, every refugee is going to be like that and they're going to do amazing things. And we have to understand that, you know, you're going to get everyone. You're just going to get it, and they're going to get good ones and you're going to get bad ones and you're going to get, you can't pick and choose exceptional refugees. Everyone's just going to come in and they'll go to school and, you know, some might end up going down a dark path and you just have to help them out and others will go out and thrive. And so... What that means is whenever there's a story or an article written about one person of refugee background, we're all painted by the same brush, good or bad. And, and to really bring it home, to really bring it home, eight weeks ago, uh, you know, a former Sri Lankan refugee went and stabbed six people in Auckland. And now suddenly, uh, we're all painted by that brush. And we have to you know, overtly then say he's not one of us, that we're not all like that, that we have to almost apologise for it. And so it, you're always living in this, in this 
pathway where you have to prove yourself for good and for bad. And so it's the sense of perspective you get, the values that are instilled in you by your parents, those are the rocks that, will, that you hold on to. Because there has been a generation of youth that have been in between the Taliban, they've experienced freedom. Do you think they will have a resistance? They will be strong enough, brave enough to actually make a change? The situation on the ground in Afghanistan is dire. People can't put food on the table. People have lost jobs. The, the economy is starting to go in a spiral and the money is starting to become worthless. And I think if that is to continue beyond six to 12 months and people literally can't feed their children, then you've got nothing to lose. And so I imagine there will be folks who are just up and leave and there will be a, a mass exodus as there has been, but perhaps even worse, to the neighbouring countries. Or, uh, you know, people who have nothing to lose, those who have the means as well, will start to pick up arms and say, uh, you know, you took over and now you haven't been able to provide security or safety for the people that you, you govern. Is there, is there pressure to do even more than I kind of feel is actually fear mm. um, to contribute to the society that you have joined? I don't think that there's external pressure on the refugee or the family that has just been arrived to New Zealand to prove themselves. I think where it comes from is a sense of internal desire. Having come from the backgrounds that we did, I mean, our, gener our family were generations of farmers, right? Hard-working people of the land who have constantly toiled. And so uh, there's internal pressure to improve your lot. And so for me, my family and many of the other Tampa families, um, you get given the ability to be like, you've got a house and, and now it's, it's up to you to make what you want out of yourself. And so there was this internal desire to be like, okay, let's get to work. Uh, in, to boil it down, I feel like you just kind of need three ingredients in order to have a meaningful existence or life. You need some security, you need some dignity, and you need some agency. And when you are forcibly displaced, when you are a refugee, when your country collapses around you, you don't have security, you don't have any dignity, and you don't have any agency to improve your life because everything around you has collapsed. And so, luckily, for the very few who are lucky enough to be given a chance at a new life, we're secure and safe, we now have a bit of dignity, and we have a bit of agency to improve your lot. That's all you need. And so when you wrapping up this whole refugee debacle, if you just give these people ability to just kind of have those three things, then I think you're going to have some pretty good outcomes. So, yeah. Great answer. So while we have the pleasure of your company, Helen, did you have any final thoughts as well you would like to, to close on or...? Yeah, final thoughts. There was a time there in August where Afghanistan was at the top of every international news bulletin and even managing to sort of break into our current preoccupation with the Delta variant outbreak here on the New Zealand news. But there, there is what's called these days the, the CNN effect, that when the immediate sort of heat of an issue is, is, is over, uh, we move on to the, the next crisis. And, and sad to say, the international media attention was largely around uh, the ev evacuation of uh, foreigners. And then, as Abbas said, those connected with the you know, immediate um, foreign presence in Afghanistan who were in particular danger. So, you know, last day of August, uh, you know, the, the evacuation stopped. But the international coverage largely stopped as well. And you know, life goes on tougher and tougher and tougher uh, for people in Afghanistan. So we just need to keep this issue on the, on the front burner, uh, that this is a country in deep crisis. If we're looking at the scale of countries in deep crises around the world today, this is right off the, the Richter scale, pretty much along with the, you know, Myanmar and what's happening in Af Afghanistan and, and Yemen and, well, Syria, we forget Syria. I mean, you know, it, it's shocking. So 
you know, do what you can, advocacy, financial support, supporting refugee resettlement, uh, there, there's work for everyone here. Thank you. Should I just make a point on that? Uh, Helen raised a very good point in that you can't just transplant and pick up people from all the war zones and conflict zones around the world and bring them to the good places around the world. You can't do that. It's impossible. There's 70 odd million people who are displaced. And we're not asking for that. I mean, there's 40 million people in Afghanistan. What we're asking for is something very tailored and very specific, and that is that you have 5,000 Afghan New Zealanders here, all who have family over there. I think a, a list that we compiled, there's about 2,000 odd people. These are, you know, people like my uncle and my aunties and that who are over there. That's what we're asking for, just the pathway for that to open up so that we can bring them over. We're not asking for New Zealand or Australia or anyone else to take up a million Afghans or, to, or whatever, and neither can you. Why should Afghan lives matter more than other lives of people either fleeing conflict or fleeing climate change or whatever? But what has happened in Afghanistan in recent months deserves some special attention, especially given New Zealand's commitment to Afghanistan over the last 20 years. So that's what we're asking for. And I think, uh, and I'm hoping, and again, forever the optimist that we would hear back, uh, because, you know, there's 5,000 Afghan Kiwis who are, you know, on tenterhooks waiting to see what will happen to their family members who are stuck over there. Brilliant. I'm getting the, 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 the subtle wink and glare from, from side stage. So uh, I think it's important that we, we thank... Helen Clark, for not only your role in the Tampa, but your continued role in this space. But last but not least, and most importantly, Abbas, for your thoughts, for your kōrero, for your whakaro that went into this book. Thank you so much for what you've written down and what you present. Thank you.